Welcome, curious people, to episode four of Where Next, the podcast that brings you the origin stories of the countries we explore to help understand the built environments around us. I'm your host, Jack Thompson from Backpackers Blueprint, and today we're taking on Costa Rica. Costa Rica is known to be one of the most biodiverse places on the planet, filled with rich forests, incredible wildlife and stunning beaches. Although it shares a border with Nicaragua and Panama, Costa Rica really has its own identity. Its people are relaxed, calling the friendly phrase pura vida wherever you go. A simple saying meaning pure life, but holding an important meaning. Live simply, live well, live happily. Now I want you to close your eyes for just a second so we can imagine this poetic landscape. Go on, close them. So I want you to imagine a misty cloud forest surrounded by towering volcano peaks like the spine of a dinosaur down the middle of a country. The slopes of this great triangular formations are draped with emerald green blankets of lush vegetation. The undulating landscape and its vast canopy seem to hold thousands of secrets. Waterfalls, lakes and stunning flora, all of which need to be explored. From the tops of these volcanoes, the landscape descends towards the Pacific or Caribbean coasts. And suddenly you find yourself in a tropical dreamscape where pristine beaches are kissed by the sun, inviting you to sink your toes into the warm golden sands. Here, the climate is different. It's warm, it's dry, but it's still teeming with dense, colourful and rich plant life among endless trees. All of these trees have been there long before us and they'll be there long after us. In between, there are fertile valleys crisscrossed by meandering rivers, sustaining an abundance of life. Costa Rica's geography, with its mountains, valleys and coastlines, is a dreamy composition that invites exploration, each bend and turn revealing more wildlife, more flora, more lakes and more rivers. The continuous rainforest is a haven for animal life. You will find the colourful toucans, mischievous monkeys, or even sloths having a day off. Every corner echoes with the harmonious rhythms of nature. Is it a wonder that yoga retreats and spas are dotted around this sanctuary of a country? The breaks in the canopy only seem to happen where there are expansive lakes, or small towns, or the capital itself, San Jose. In the smaller towns, you will find modest buildings of concrete painted in vibrant colours. These homes are usually topped with corrugated sheet metal roofs and some simple shutters to cover windows in the hotter months. There will be a church in the centre with a plaza or garden square nearby. Backpacking here, although an expensive country, makes you feel as though money doesn't matter. It's not a marker of status or power. It gives a sense of true freedom away from the world at large. A place where you can just go and be human on a human planet. Your values seem to be identified through how light you are on the planet, how much you give back to the world around you, and how kind you are as a person. If only this could be embodied across the globe. Here in the world of Pura Vida, in the world where everything seems serene, everything seems tranquil, everything feels right, the history books actually show a similar story. This is what we'll look at today, the history of Costa Rica, its indigenous past, their relationship with the Spanish, before the modern day Costa Rica, a country that does not have an army. 
we will look at San Jose, its development, and Costa Rica's ambitions into the future, and we will disperse ourselves across the country to find its secrets and stories that you can explore. So let's get into this. Like in all other Central American countries, we're able to find the indigenous communities in Costa Rica that date back thousands of years. We're able to find the Chorotega people, mentioned in the Nicaragua podcast, the Hutar, the Bribri, the Cabquer, and the Boruca, to name a few. Perhaps one of the most interesting pieces of history in Costa Rica is the archaeological site of Cuervo. This site is almost at the very centre point of the country. It is not the most impressive site and small in nature, but what you will find is a series of low-level circular walls built in stone that are believed to be the foundation of roundhouses. These low-level walls would be topped with thatched roofs to form simple structures. There are a few houses that appear to have been clustered together to form a small village. If you visit as a tourist, you may find it a little underwhelming, however, there is an this is an important site for Costa Rica as largely there is little in the way of grandiose developments that we see elsewhere in Central America, but it does indicate a long human history and a long human connection to the land in Costa Rica. It is believed that the site dates back to around 1000 BCE and was then abandoned in 1400 CE for unknown reasons. The site consists of 43 stone foundations, three aqueducts, two major roadways and dozens of smaller paths, as well as some stone tombs. Another interesting part of the Costa Rican landscape that is quite unique is the site of Finca 6. Finca 6 is part of the Daquis Delta Sphere, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's known for its mysterious stone spheres that date back to 600 CE. The purpose of these perfectly round spheres that range from a few centimetres to over two metres in diameter remains a subject of debate among archaeologists. Settlement of the region began around 1500 BC in the form of small and dispersed farming communities. After this time, between 300 BC and 880, settlements developed into what are called chiefdom structures. Chiefdoms were hierarchical political structures led by a chief or a leader, as the name suggests, and were characterised by social stratification, ceremonial centres, and centralised authority. While not as complex as some of the other Mesoamerican civilizations in the same era, think back to episode 2 and what we found in Guatemala between 200 BC and 800 AD, site site Tikal, chiefdoms still played a significant role in the organisation of pre-Columbian communities in Costa Rica. Chiefdoms had territorial divisions and each division would have its own organised trading networks. So what else happened in the pre-Columbian time? Well, the truth of the matter is, not a lot. Costa Rica would effectively be sparsely populated, made up of these small indigenous communities, trading locally and living modestly, and more importantly, living sustainably. 
A side thought and one that I've alluded to before, but I always find it interesting in a world with challenges like climate change that we keep looking back thousands of years to have a look at sustainable architecture. Today, the world is dominated by high-rise structures of concrete, glass and steel. Interestingly, we are told in architecture school that we will be responsible for the future and sustainable buildings, but the fact of the matter is, any architecture or new architecture is pure consumerism. Perhaps there is an issue with society at large that needs addressing, and maybe we could do a future episode that explores the effects of the human on the planet in greater detail. So let's go back to the indigenous. The people of Costa Rica would be living in their chiefdoms, part of the environment, and living in the world around them harmoniously when the arrival of the Spanish would occur. Now, in previous episodes, you would have heard me talk of mass devastation due to war and disease, but here would be slightly different. Columbus would sail past Costa Rica in 1502. It is thought that he would land on the island just north of Limon, or where Limon is today, Uvita Island, but not actually set foot on the mainland. In fact, it would not be until 1560, 58 years later, that the Spanish would begin to influence Costa Rica through the missionaries. The Spanish would inhabit Costa Rica, but they would remarkably live alongside the indigenous. Not entirely peacefully, however, enough to leave them be, but they would still take ultimate rule. Why did they leave them be? Well, because Costa Rica is not rich in precious metals in the way that other countries were. So the domination that we've become accustomed to just didn't happen here. There was no need for them to be on this part of the Central American land. The first permanent Spanish settlement that would be formed in Costa Rica would be called Cartago, which was founded in 1563 by Jan Vaquez de Coronado. Although not under the thumb in the same way, Costa Rica, along with other Central American territories, gained independence from Spanish rule in 1821, which we've heard about in previous episodes. The region briefly joined the Mexican Empire, but soon became part of the United Provinces of Central America. By 1838, Costa Rica declared itself a sovereign and independent nation. Check out our previous episodes for more on the Mexican Empire and how it was dismantled quickly. Post-independence, Costa Rica would begin to go through some liberal reforms. One of the most remarkable being the decision to abolish the National Army. However, we'll talk about this in a little more detail shortly. While liberal reforms were not primarily focused on economic issues, they stabilised the country and provided a great environment for economic development. Costa Rica experienced growth in industries such as coffee production, which became a major economic driver in the late 19th century. When you find yourself in Costa Rica, you're never far from a coffee tour and I highly recommend you take one because frankly the coffee is fantastic. If you want recommendations, then we actually have one in Monteverde section on the Costa Rica page on the Backpackers Blueprint website, so check it out there. The other player who would enter the scene we heard about in the last episode on Nicaragua, the United Fruit Company, or the UFCO, an American corporation. The UFCO, and later the Standard Fruit Company, would acquire huge land areas for the production of bananas. Today, you may have seen and have likely eaten at some point a banana from the Chiquita brand. The UFCO became Chiquitas. And their logo is a blue background 
with a lady in yellow with a fruit bowl filled with fruit on her head. Trust me, you will have seen this before. If not, then have a quick Google. To facilitate the export of bananas, companies invested in the development of infrastructure, including railways and ports. These transportation networks were crucial for effectively moving bananas from plantations to be exported to largely America. The expansion of banana plantations in Costa Rica required a large and inexpensive labour force. So therefore, companies brought in workers from the Caribbean, particularly Jamaica and Barbados, to work on the plantations. This ended up contributing to the multicultural and diverse demographic makeup of the coastal regions around the Caribbean coast. The Caribbean labourers influenced the culture of the region, including its music, food and other aspects of local culture. The coastal areas with significant banana plantations developed a distinct cultural identity that you must visit when heading to Costa Rica. The best place to go to see this is probably Limon. The banana industry became a crucial part of Costa Rica's economy, generating significant revenues through exports. However, the dominance of foreign companies in the industry meant that a lot of the profits did not actually stay in the country. Workers often faced poor working conditions, low wages and a lack of job security. Labour strikes such as the United Fruit Company's workers' strike in 1934 brought attention to these issues. The strikes resulted in some concessions from the companies and marked a massive turning point in the labour relations in the country. I'd like to press forward a little bit more now to 1948, where we find the Costa Rican Civil War. The war erupted primarily due to the deep-rooted political and social economic tensions, which we've just alluded to. We mentioned the dominance of the coffee industry, and this led to what can only be described as a coffee oligarchy. This combination, with the control of land by the previously mentioned fruit players, created a significant economic disparity. The agrarian economy was dominated by a few wealthy landovers, and this fueled an underbelly of discontent and anger amongst the working people. As we know with most of our stories so far, with an underbelly of discontent, we find an equal and an opposite reaction. Our opposite reaction in the story of Costa Rica comes from a man by the name of Jose Figueres Ferreira, who emerged as a leader of the populist movement that sought to challenge the existing political and economic order. Figueres garnered support from a diverse coalition of progressive and leftist groups, as well as disenchanted elements within the existing military. The conflict was sparked by the contested result of the 1948 presidential election where Rafael Angel Calderón of the opposing party claimed victory. Now this is super interesting because when you hear this you're going to think this sounds remarkably familiar. Accusations of electoral fraud and perceived threats to democratic institutions intensified existing divisions between the ruling elite and the growing populist movement led by Figueres. Sound familiar? Might well do. Anyway, the conflict escalated and Figueres mobilized a diverse coalition known as the Junta Fundadora de la Segunda República, which included leftist groups and elements of the military. 
The civil war lasted 44 days, resulting in defeat for Calderon's forces and the establishment of a more inclusive and progressive government under Figueres could be established. As a consequence, Figueres abolished the military, initiated social and political reforms, and set Costa Rica on a path to political stability and social progress. Yay! So, what did he put in place and why? Well, Figueres introduced social guarantees, including labour rights and welfare programmes. He addressed economic disparities and promoted social justice. He created land reforms aimed at redistributing land to the peasants sought to create a more equal agricultural landscape. He expanded voting rights and established democratic principles. Figueres supported educational reforms and played a crucial role in the creation of the Costa Rican social security systems. He established healthcare and social services as well. These reforms laid the foundations for Costa Rica's political stability, social progress, and commitment to inclusive governance. Post Figueres, Costa Rica has actively promoted diplomacy and peace. The country founded the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in 1979 and it's also home to the United Nations mandated University for Peace. What a thing. So let's quickly talk about the debt crisis before coming on to Costa Rica heading into the future. In 1980 the global debt crisis would hit and it would have profound effects on Costa Rica as well as many other countries. Faced with soaring external debt, the country implemented structural adjustments programs in collaboration with the international financial institutions to try and resolve them. These measures, while addressing immediate economic challenges, led to austerity measures, privatization of state ownership enterprises and cuts in public spending. The restructuring efforts influenced the country's economic policies and fueled debates on the role of the state. While the crisis prompted necessary adjustments, it's also generated social and political tensions, shaping Costa Rica's approach to economic management and social policies in the subsequent decades. Which brings on to where I now want to be, Costa Rica into the future. Because the economic disaster fundamentally would help pave the way for Costa Rica going forward. In the 1990s, Costa Rica continued to modernise its economy and attract foreign investment. The technology sector in particular saw growth and the country became a hub for outsourcing and information technology services. Perhaps most importantly though, probably to anyone who listens this, to this podcast, Costa Rica gained international recognition for its commitment to the environment and its conservation. The country implemented policies and initiatives to protect its rich biodiversity, promote sustainable practices and address environmental challenges, which is why we see the ecotourism booming in the way we do today. In 2019, Costa Rica unveiled its National Decarbonisation Plan, outlining ambitious goals to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. The plan emphasises transitioning to renewable energies, improving public transportation and promoting sustainable practices. So believe it or not, that pretty much covers our 
history of Costa Rica. Perhaps this is going to be one of the shortest podcast episodes we do. However, I don't want to leave it here. I want to quickly talk about some cool places to visit and where you may not want to spend as much time, starting with the capital city, San Jose. San Jose was founded in 1738 by the Spanish colonial authorities. It initially served as a small settlement and its location in the central highlands provided a strategic position between the Pacific and the Caribbean coasts. As we now know, San Jose experienced significant growth during the 19th century, fueled in part by the expansion of that coffee cultivation that we know of. The wealth generated from this industry contributed to the city's development. Many of the city's historic buildings date back to the 19th and 20th centuries, showcasing a mix of architectural styles including Victorian and neoclassical. The early 20th century brought influences from Art Deco, visible in some buildings from around the 1920s and 1930s, but as the city continued to expand, mid-century modern architecture emerged, showcasing clean lines and contemporary design principles. In recent decades, San Jose has embraced both contemporary and green architectural trends with a focus on functionality, sustainability and innovative design. You can also find some very brutalist buildings which are geometrically striking. Check out the San Jose section on the Costa Rica page of the Backpackers Blueprint website to see some photos that I took during my time there. We're also going to release some blog posts on the architecture of this area, so make sure you subscribe, subscribe sorry, while you're there so you don't miss out. The architectural landscape is a real juxtaposition, an architecturally intriguing city. However, like all cities, you do get targeted crime. This might sound a little bit strange, but for some reason, I did not feel overly safe at night in San Jose. Walking around, you can quickly find yourself down a dark street, so a taxi is always a good option. The city overall does not feel like a destination city and by that I mean a place to relax, eat, party. It feels like a gritty urban centre. Now there are things to do here for sure. Um, architecture is perhaps one of the best things to do, a, a tour around the city to have a look at the, the buildings that are there. However, I, and this is my opinion, I wouldn't spend a large amount of time in San Jose. From San Jose, your main destinations are going to be the Parque Nacional, Cocavota, Limón, La Fortuna, Monteverde, Tamarinda and Talamanca. So let's talk a little about each one of these to get you excited about your trip and to help you plan if you're going to go. Parque Nacional Cocavota is a pristine rainforest nestled along the country's southern Pacific coast. This biodiverse haven is teeming with exotic wildlife and a lush vegetation. It offers a profound connection to nature's grandeur. As you trek through its dense trails, you'll find the symphony of howler monkeys, the rustling of vibrant flora, and the soothing rush of cascading waterfalls. The park's rugged terrain and unspoilt beauty are truly awe-inspiring. Corcovado captivates not only with its ecological diversity but also with its profound spiritual and ecological significance. It truly is an unforgettable destination for nature enthusiasts and adventurers alike, so make sure you add it to your list. You can only do this through organised trips. 
Tamarindo is laid back, it's a great spot to do some surfing and it has a lot of coastal charm as well as a surf centric culture. The Golden Beach is a vibrant town atmosphere create a cool spot to meet fellow backpackers and relax during the day and you can even party at night. Coming down south from Tamarindo you tend to go next to Monteverde. Monteverde is the iconic cloud forest paradise. It invites exploration with its unreal landscapes and innovative ecological friendly designs. The architectural ethos here harmonizes with nature, seamlessly blending sustainable structures into this lush, mist-covered surrounding. You can venture through suspended bridges and canopy walks. The structures seem to emerge organically coming out of the rainforests themselves. Now, Monteverde has committed to conservation and ecotourism, so it's a massive bonus to help you enjoy this, this area and have a kind of almost a guilt-free episode of tourism. The final thing I'd like to say about Monteverde is you can also do a lot of zip lining and um, things like bungee jumps and Tarzan swings. So if you're a bit of an adrenaline junkie, then this spot is also pretty good for you here. So from Monteverde, you tend to go to La Fortuna, and La Fortuna is the next spot on from Monteverde, which, as the bird flies, is relatively close. However, it's a long, beautiful journey to get there that involves a bus, a lake, and another bus. So don't let the uh, the bird's eye or the bird's flight fool you. Nestled at the base of the majestic Aranel Volcano, you'll find the traditional Costa Rican architecture and modern eco-lodges against the backdrop of Aranel. This town's thermal springs up and lush surroundings also offer unique opportunities to go, chill, relax, again meet fellow backpackers, meet fellow explorers, and you can also do things like hulk the hulk? hike sorry, <laughs> the volcano, which is a really great thing to do. Moving on from here, let's quickly talk about Limon, which is something we've already, or a town we've already mentioned. Limon is on the Costa Rica Caribbean coast and it's kind of a historical gem shaped by the Caribbean influences and that rich cultural diversity that was created from the banana plantations. There is a fusion of colonial architecture and a vibrant Caribbean hue. The bustling markets echo with reggae beats and it kind of adds a dynamic flair to the cityscape and a really arty, cool, colourful, upbeat feel. So it's a really cool place to check out for anyone who wants to have something a bit different or get, get a, a different side of the culture in Costa Rica that you kind of don't really get anywhere else. The final place I want to mention is Puerto Viejo de Talamanca. This is also situated along the Costa Rican Caribbean coast and it's kind of a bohemian haven where the Caribbean influences and biodiversity converge. The vibrant town exudes a laid-back atmosphere and the architecture echoes the culture of the region. Colourful Caribbean-style structures line the shore and the beach and these blend kind of into that rainforest that almost meets the, the beach and shoreline. The fusion of artistic expression and sustainable design in Puerto Viejo will leave a lasting impression and kind of an imprint in your memories. It, very much similar to that Holbosch vibe if you like. So the other thing you can do from Talamanca is skip over the border to get to Panama and guess what our next podcast is going to be on Panama. 
So join us then when we talk about Laguna Yala people and the San Blas Islands, the infamous canal, and we generally take a deep dive into the history of Panama. Much love to you all out there if you have stuck with me this long. And don't forget to check out the website. And if you have enjoyed anything you've heard today or you want to know more about what you've heard today, then we'll put some website links and our bibliography in the show notes below. Speak to you guys soon. Enjoy exploring the world. <laughs>